title of my talk today is not an original one. It's actually um, borrowed from a very well-known book by Vilas Nopal, the um, Trinidad-born Nobel laureate of Indian origin. He wrote a book in the early 90s, I think, sorry, it was 1990, the title, A Million Mutinies Now. And this was a book which he wrote after extensive travels in India and trying to find out what was happening in this vast country through interpreters, because he doesn't know Indian languages. Um, the book, which was published in 1990, uh, called India A Million Mutinies Now, in a way was indicative of a shift in thinking about India among Western intellectuals or Western-oriented intellectuals. Um, this final book in uh, his India trilogy was, was more positive in striking contrast to his two previous non-fiction books about India, An Area of Darkness, which was published in 1964, and India, A Wounded Civilization, 1977. Both these were published to critical international acclaim and scathing criticism within India. So did Nepal get it right on the third attempt? Um, he is, I, I would suggest, steeped within a, a British colonial intellectual tradition which despite close historical relations with India has often misunderstood it. Um, it was Winston Churchill who famously said that India was no more a united nation than the equator. History has proved those prophets of doom decisively wrong. India has not only remained united despite the legacy of partition and its aftermath, but also emerged as a force to reckon with in the contemporary international community. <clears throat> the growing profile of India on the global scene has been helped by the increasing visibility of its cultural and creative industries, its diaspora, and its media. Um, indeed, a million media are in operation in a vibrant and expanding media sphere in one of the world's fastest growing economies. In fact, only last week, the IMF told us that India has surpassed Japan as the world's third largest economy on the basis of purchasing power parity. And despite the global economic downturn, last year India um, recorded a, a growth of 7%. The media and entertainment industry particularly is growing rapidly, um, is considered nearly touching $13 billion. Um, this has happened because of a massive liberalization deregulation and privatization of both telecom and, uh, and uh, television industries and these have transformed the media landscape in one of the most um, diverse and multi-layered media systems anywhere in the world. Now this shift is not particular 
uh, to India. This is what we tend to see as globalization of media. It's happened in many other parts of the world. And in that shift, primarily it's the transnational corporations, mostly based in the United States, um, who continue to dominate both global communication hardware as well as software. Um, but within this US-dominated global media sphere, India, though still a minor player, is emerging the potential of being a major player. Um, as the industry is opening up, transnational investment is increasing in the Indian media and cultural industries. And at the same time, Indian investment is also uh, increasingly visible in international media industries, no less than Hollywood and uh, no less than Steven Spielberg. But outside this rest, West versus particular country syndrome that is often used to analyze global developments, there's something else happening, which I think is potentially very interesting. Um, and this is the growing relationship between, uh, as it were, the West, the, the rest, sorry, the rest, uh, the South-South media flows. Um, one of the most interesting examples of that is what is happening between India and China. John mentioned, you know, two major um, economies, in fact, fastest growing economies in the world. In fact, last year, the trade between India and China was uh, 70 billion dollars. China is India's largest trading partner. Um, and that's also happening in the media sector. In 2005, China produced its first Bollywood-inspired film. And more recently, they have um, announced production of another film called Cold Struck, which is a Chinese film, but based on Bollywood model. But beyond this Chindian media exchange, there's something else happening within the broader BRICS space. Um, and a prominent example of that is here for you to uh, share with you um, a Brazilian soap opera called India I Love Story. The colleagues from Brazil, eh? Okay. Very, very popular. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> This was uh, shown in 2000, uh, 2009 on TV Global, uh, one of the major media corporations in the world and the largest producer of soap operas in the world. Um, and also won Emmy Award. Uh, I want to show you a little um, clip from this. I hope it works. see this is a Brazilian soap opera, Brazilian actors playing Indian characters. The iconography is very Bollywood. The music that you hear um, is from tracks, Bollywood films, very popular films. Uh, and this is an example of a kind of hybridized media culture which is emerging outside the West as it were outside the radar of Western scholarship or Western media or Western analysis. And there are two major countries um, 
trying to find synergies. So in, in this talk, what I plan to do is to uh, argue that in this complex, globalized, multivocal, multi-layered media system, um, India offers a very interesting possibilities for developing a kind of media culture, which is not necessarily derivative. So one has to think beyond how the West views the media world. And in the case of India, of course, the most important player is this major film industry, which um, not only uh, defines popular culture, but is increasingly important in journalism too, in the way it actually influences uh, journalism, particularly television journalism. Um, I don't need to spend a lot of time to uh, explain to you what Bollywood is. Most of us have some idea of what it is. It is the largest producer of film, feature films in the world, um, and these films are shown across the globe and increasingly beyond the South Asian diaspora. Its most important presence, of course, you see in broadcasting in India, just to give you a sense of how it has changed. Um, this is the um, chart showing growth of television channels in India from 1991, um, which was the time it started opening up airwaves to both domestic and international private capital. Um, the latest figures I have here for 2011 is now 825 TV news channels. This one has 550, that was 2010. Um, 50 out of these are broadcasting in English, which makes India one of the largest English language television market in the world. In parallel with the transformation in this broadcast sector, um, you also have massive growth in newspaper circulation, um, something which is very different than what we experience in, in the UK or in, in, in Europe or in the United States. Um, according to the World Association of Newspapers, um, in India was the world's largest newspaper market with 110 million copies sold every day. FM radio too is growing very rapidly. 245 FM stations by the end of 2011, according to the latest data. And so is digital mobile media. I'll come to that later. Given that we are living in this world of neoliberal um, ideology, I thought I will structure my talks uh, by borrowing on the ideas of dividends and deficits. So apologies for using that terminology. Um, I'll examine first the four key dividends which would explain this growth of media, media, media. Um, I'll discuss them in categories of democratic dividend, diasporic, digital and demographic which I argue would actually explain the essence of India. And then to retain a sense of balance, I would also point out deficits in these four categories, which may hamper and even distort 
the rise of India on the globe. So let me start with the, the first one, which is the uh, democratic dividend. One reason India has this massive growth of media is that it is a multilingual country, as this map indicates. And no wonder the largest media growth is in Hindi language, the light green on that map, because that's the largest population in the country. Some version of Hindi is spoken by the largest number of people in India, and it has created kind of um, media scene which is multilingual and multicultural. Now, Indians take a particular pride in their democracy. And I think that is justified, given that it's the only developing country which has since entered colonialism only seen democracy, no other form of government. It is indeed a, a, a paradox because India is one of the most undemocratic societies on this planet with its caste and feudal hierarchies. Yet it has been a fantastically successful democracy. Um, a federal democratic structure and a constitution which ensures freedom of expression and linguistic, religious and cultural pluralism has been absolutely crucial uh, in the growth of media in India. Um, although the, the, the constitution recognizes 18 languages as official, there are at least 400 other languages which are widely used in the country. Another reason for this growth has been the impressive improvement in India's literacy rate, which has grown steadily in the last two decades from 52% to 74%. Indian journalism itself has a very deep awareness of that democratic culture that you know that, that, that journalism has to operate as a fourth state um, in a vibrant and argumentative democracy. But there is something more. If you look at the standard history of journalism in India, you would find that some of the top journalists in India also had a very strong political affiliation. Most of them were uh, very active in the anti-colonial movement. One of the most famous journalists in India, undoubtedly, in fact, the most famous journalist was Mahatma Gandhi, who for most of his adult life edited um, Young India, later called Harijan, and this paper was read by millions of people. One indication of the vigor and vitality of this is also to be seen in the number of news channels that India has. 120 on the last count, um, which is the largest in any other country in the world. In fact, more news channels in India than all of Europe combined. This proliferation of news has arguably democratized Indian democracy, has also democratized public discourse has also provided voice to the people who were voiceless and sought and sometimes received accountability from um, governments. Here are three examples of um, what television has done uh, in terms of encouraging people to vote, in terms of 
engaging uh, encourage them to engage with developmental issues and in terms of economic issues. Networks such as uh, NDTV here on the on the left um, have in fact taken serious campaigns, public interest campaigns, whether it's about environment, whether it's about gender equality, and in fact on occasion either initiate or influence state policy. So this democratic dividend I would suggest is a crucial element in the rise of the media media. My second um, dividend is diasporic. And here I have a personal interest because I've been living in this country since 1988. And I've seen how perception of India has changed, how perception of Indians abroad has changed in these two decades. And since the 1990s, in fact, a new kind of immigration is taking place. It's a more middle-class immigration. Um, and that immigration is, is also affecting the both production and consumption of Indian media, helped by digitization and growing availability of uh, satellite and cable television, as well as online delivery mechanisms. Indian television has been particularly important in this process and Bollywood has been the majority of content on these channels. It doesn't matter um, where the, the diaspora is based, but you go to US, you go to the Gulf, you go to South Africa, you go to Southeast Asia, there's two 25 million strong South Asia, sorry, Indian diaspora scattered around the globe is engaging with this media. This diaspora is also um, an important source for financial um, support for India. Um, its worth is estimated as something in the range of $300 billion annually, and it contributes something in the range of $10 billion to India. It's only, it was only in 2003 that the government of India woke up this resource that India has, 25 million people, some of them extremely well educated and professionals. And they started celebrating this, and this annual event called Pravasi Bharti Divas, celebration of overseas Indians. I went to one once in Delhi. Um, where the government now recognizes that this diaspora is actually part of India's global presence. Um, in terms of journalism, also you could see Indian presence is particularly interesting, especially in the United States. Um, Farid Zakaria, who is now the Time magazine, was for a long time editor of the Newsweek International. Um, and he's one of those rising stars of American journalism as Indian Ocean. Indian diasporic presence is also strong in uh, academia. Not so much in this country, but certainly in the United States, um, in the Ivy League universities, and most recently, um, Tata's, one of the biggest industrial houses in India, gave uh, Harvard Business School the largest um, grant that they have ever received. I'm hoping they'll give some to us also. <laughs> um, it's interesting that in President Obama's uh, uh, tenure, there are two dozen Indian Americans in important federal posts, uh, the highest number in any administration. Indian presence is also important in IT sector particularly, 
pronounced Indian input in Hotmail, Google, Microsoft, Apple. Indian geeks, both male and female, regularly appear in media to debate current affairs, consuming and producing content and deploying digital technologies to distribute globally. And that takes me to my third division, uh, which is digital division, which has contributed significantly to this massive growth of media. The day when um, Steve Jobs died last year, um, an unfortunate day, the media all over the world were full of glowing of its, the day after, sorry, of the man who gave us iPhone and iPad and iPod. On the same day, buried inside some of the newspapers, there was a short news item about this. India had launched the world's cheapest tablet called Akash, Sky in Sanskrit, at just $40. Kapil Sibbal, the man on the right here, um, who is the Minister for Human Resource Development and Telecommunication, also announced that the government of India is going to provide every university student in the country with one of these. Um, and I would suggest that Akash and other such initiatives will further add to the impressive growth of India's cultural creative industries, especially given the strength of India in the IT industry um, and the growing convergence between creative and cultural industries, including journalism and IT sector. Industry estimates say that despite the economic slump, IT exports from India will reach $148 billion by end of this year. So we're talking about serious money here. The biggest digital dividend, I think, is in the mobile media, which has witnessed explosive growth. India is already the planet's biggest mobile phone market. Its communication structure remains weak in comparison to more developed countries. Internet penetration is very uh, low. Uh, as of end of 2011, it was only 10% of the population which was able to access the internet. But with the growth of mobile internet and the 3G which is coming in the next three, four years, it's going to transform the internet. We are so used to thinking of the internet as the English language phenomenon with democratization of 3G technology. Just imagine when not 10, but 90% are online, what kind of content would be going in what language? And the people who are engaging with this most are the young. And that <coughs> takes me to my fourth dividend about demographics, the population trends. Nandan Nilkani uh, is the man who is overseeing one of the world's largest IT projects giving every Indian a unique identification number, 1.1 billion people. He has coined this term, demographic division. Though India is an ancient civilization, it's a very young nation. More than 70% of Indians are below the age of 35. As more and more Indians work and study outside India, or to use Nandan's phrase, work for the world. The digital content they produce and consume is likely to reach all corners of the globe. And this young demographic is very savvy with the digital technologies. 
they are growing up with it. And when mobile internet becomes accessible to the rural youth in India, what kind of content will be circulated? And then there is the question of English language media, including English language journalism, which despite what's happening in terms of the, the, the shifting power structures in the world, is likely to remain the most important language of global communication and commerce. And there India has a very important contribution to make, because as I, as I said earlier, English is very widely used, especially in both academia and in journalism. So this demographic becomes relevant in the context of both English language media in India, opening up possibilities and opportunities, <coughs> which globalization of Indian industries offer, but also indigenization of transnational media operations. If you're a Hollywood producer, you want to be in China and India. These are the market where India only 10% is for overseas um, films. So you want to indigenize your project. So there's a very interesting possibilities there. So these are the four dividends which might explain the rise of India. But we should get carried away. I should just sit here. Because uh, there is another D, a big D. That's about deficit. Of course, democracy, diaspora, digitization, and demography is very important. But there is a major development and deficit. I'll briefly talk, sorry, I'll just uh, show this um, slide about um, the demographic, the demographic uh, figures, just to compare it with the other major countries. Uh, so India will be adding something in the range of 140 million um, workers as against decline in Europe and very little uh, expansion in US. So, I now want to look at all these four in terms of deficits, starting with democratic deficits. Despite this massive growth of the economy and media particularly, India remains home to the largest number of poor people in the world. There's more poverty in India in absolute numbers than in sub-Saharan Africa. So one key challenge for journalists as well as the policymakers is to how to use India's economic power as well as its soft um, cultural power um, to deal with this deficit. Part of the problem is the, the Bollywoodization of content, Bollywoodization of journalism, um, news media particularly seem to have forgotten the poor. They are not on the agenda. An agenda which is primarily driven by a particular kind of demographics. People who have the money to buy products advertised on those channels the model is crassly commercial. Out of the 122 channels, news channels I mentioned, the vast majority are not really, uh, you know, producing news. They're producing infotainment. They're producing editorials 
for corporations, for governments, uh, both in domestic capital and transnational capital. In fact, um, the, the deeper problem is that this kind of media system actually reconfigures hegemony um, and legitimizes a particular kind of agenda, which is a neoliberal agenda, which is fundamentally predicated on free market. Fundamentalism, if you like. One media analyst uh, described it very well. He called it ABC of media. Advertising, Bollywood, and corporate power. And in a ratings-driven media environment, uh, which is fiercely competitive, increasingly journalists are often forced to take recourse to soft stories, stories that really do not matter, but generate um, ratings. It's unfortunate in a country where, as I was saying earlier, there is a very long and distinct tradition of public journalism. A more recent and worrying trend, um, which is particularly problematic, is the idea of paid news. Um, this was witnessed in its crudest form during the provincial elections in 2009 in Western Indian state of Maharashtra, when the chief minister there bought editorial space in leading Marathi language newspapers to promote his election prospects. India's press council warned, and I quote, the phenomenon of paid news goes beyond the corruption of individual journalists and media companies. It has become pervasive, structured, and highly organized, and in the process is undermining democracy in India. This broader political and corporate corruption, I would argue, has weakened democracy in India. And um, by overwhelming public discourse with this kind of Bollywoodized nonsense, uh, agrarian aspects of, uh, of society are uh, marginalized. At a time when rising power like India is increasingly integrating with a US-led neoliberal uh, system, commodity capitalism, if you like. Indian Prime Minister is on record saying that Maoists, the extreme left-wing group, are the biggest threat to India's security. Indian media, with a few exceptions, by and large never explore why there is insurgency in large parts of the country. In fact, the security discourse is often framed in the context of real or imagined foreign threats. It is no coincidence that India is the world's largest weapons importer and is estimated to spend something in the range of $80 billion on military modernization by 2015, according to SIPRI. I think these are worrying trends and they undermine democratic um, structures. Let me move to the next um, deficit, and that's diaspora. Although as somebody who belongs to that community, I have to be careful what I say. But there is uh, a great deal of hype associated with this diaspora. There are lots of Indians abroad who are living in appalling conditions, especially in, not in the Western world, but even in the Western world. Um, 
the old debates about brain drain, that the cream of India is working for multinational corporations or for Western governments, has actually that, that debate has abated a little bit. But the difference between India, which is globalized, isn't this speaking <coughs> country, and Bharat, traditional rural majority India, if you like, that is growing and also to be seen in diaspora. <coughs> English-speaking and increasingly Americanized young Indians are leaving India to enrich the transnational corporations and the countries in which they are based. Mayamati, who is um, until recently was Chief Minister of Uttar um, Pradesh, the largest populated state in India, um, she was once reported to have said that unlike her English-speaking, mostly upper-caste compatriots whose loyalties may veer towards transnational capital, she and her people, 17% of India's population, have their loyalties firmly rooted in the soil and soul of India. The professional New Indian diaspora, especially in the US and UK, has very few members from Mayavati's class and caste. The majority belong to a culturally hybridized group, apparently at peace with cosmopolitan living and consuming immediate in India at My um, third point about deficit is digital. Despite exceptional growth in both television and telecommunication, millions of Indians are, have not benefited from the digital revolution. This is not a question of just excess. There are more structural deficiencies that we need to address. For example, meteorology or meteorological office might tell farmers, fishermen, not to go to fish on a particular day because they have the satellites and they can see um, the storm is brewing. But if these fishermen then go out to fish, risking their own life, and many die in, in their everyday experience. They would have nothing to eat on their thali at night. It is particularly ironic in a country which was the first in the world to use satellite television for education, the famous site experiment, uh, satellite television <coughs> experiment in the 1970s. The idea was that we're going to teach the poorest of the poor how they can use information about how to improve their lives, health, hygiene, basic stuff. What digital revolution has done, it has actually commodified people's lives as it has done elsewhere. So, this digital dividend also has very serious limitations. That takes me to my final deficit, um, which is about demographic. This demographics, which is seen as India's major strength, can also be its strongest weakness, if you pardon the pun. Um, because all these young, able-bodied people need work. India has the largest population of unemployed, or certainly underemployed, anywhere in the world. It is also home to the largest number of child labor in the world. I wonder if there is any connection. So you've got these young, able-bodied men and women ready to work, 
They have a lot of work. And then you have these kids who should be at school or in playgrounds are working in cramped conditions in factories or in illegal factories or as domestic animals. So, demographics also one has to be very careful about. But drawing a balance sheet between divisions and deficits, I am basically an optimist and I believe that in fact dividends are stronger though on the surface the deficits may look insurmountable. Democracy has taken deep roots in India and one major factor which often doesn't come onto media discourse within the country or outside is that how power equations are changing in real India, that is rural India. Half the seats in local panchayats, which are the village level uh, bodies, elected bodies, are actually reserved for women across the country. And that is bringing an unseen revolution. The journalists are so, with my apology, the journalists in this room, journalists are so urban centric and so um, metropolitan centric that they haven't really taken this on board. That uh, the power is shifting at a very, very basic level at a village level. And that gives me great hope for the future in the office. Mass media, despite this incredible commercial pressure <coughs> and a lot of um, infotainment driven content, I would argue that what India has today is actually better than what was available to, uh, to a reader or a viewer when I was growing up in India. So I would argue, by and large, the fourth state role, at least sections of the media have been able to deliver. Indian diaspora is likely to grow. The demographics are standing in their favor. The English language uh, is a great advantage. The education system is great. And this culture of multi-layered, multi-vocal you know, lifestyle that people grow up in India with is a great plus in a globalized world. And the digital revolution is unstoppable. And if these are handled carefully, both uh, demographics and digital, it will bring unprecedented prosperity. So these are my four divisions and uh, deficits. I want to end with a few, two brief comments. Uh, two brief comments. Very, roughly very brief. Yeah. Um, what, we don't, what would this mean to the way we have traditionally thought about the media? Somebody who teaches this, I'm, I'm particularly concerned that my day job is somewhere else. I am an international communication professor. And the two areas where the rise of India would make a difference. One is in the debate about what I call liberal pluralism. Um, unlike the West where multiculturalism is sort of imposed from above and it's the kind of um, not always an agreeable position that um, you know, social cultural position that people have to take. In India it is organic. Um, every major religion in the world <coughs> exists. Festivals are celebrated. Different languages, dialects, accents coexist. The composite culture that India offers I think is very important and in that context particularly relevant is representation of Islam. 
because although now under Obama administration we don't call it war on terror, but actually that is one of the major problems in the world in terms of how Islam is represented. And I think India, given its history, um, it is the, um, the whole civilization has emerged from a tradition which is, which, whose roots are not in Abrahamic religions. So the discourses about clash of civilization or crusades are foreign. You talk to an Abrahamic about crusades, they have very little idea what they are talking about. This is a Western discourse or it's an Arab discourse. So there is a fundamental difference in which India perceives Islam. If British colonialism had not divided India in 1947, it would have been the world's largest Muslim country in terms of population. Today, with 177 million, it is the world's third largest. So that's one very important contribution that India can make to the representation of Islam, both in um, popular culture but also in journalism. And the other area, which is absolutely crucial, is the whole debate about the discourse about development. Because India has a tradition of dealing with that. If you look at literature development communication, you'll find a lot of Indian input there. And given that despite this massive growth, it will remain a poor country. The development would be absolutely crucial in the way you raise people's standards, basic standards. So the question is, would development difference be different, uh, discourse would be different if it was shaped in New Delhi and not in New York? My, um, I was going to show you this clip, but I don't know that I've got time for it. Um, have I? Is that the last thing? It is, it is the last thing, yes. Okay. Um, this is related to the point I was making about Islam. And uh, let me know this film. Are we here excluded? Okay, now this is a film which a prestigious journal, Foreign Policy, um, said that it was one of the top 10 films related to 9 11. Um, let me just play, if I, if I can, a little trailer about this film, and I'll end with that. Okay, uh, on that note, I'll stop. Um, I can take questions on this and other things. Um, thank you. Thank you.